The second reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rehab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Jeoatil. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azel, Azel, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matham, Matham, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I reckon Gary deserves a round of applause for getting from all that. Great work. Thank you, Gary. Well, a whole list of names. Is it boring? Well, hopefully you'll see that it is not boring at all. But let's pray and we'll consider this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us and even this list of long names in this genealogy of Jesus. Help us to see why it is important and why we must know it and what we must learn from it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is the Advent season, first Sunday of December. The word Advent, it comes, from, it comes from the Latin, which means coming or arrival. And it's a season where we start to celebrate the coming of Jesus. But at the same time, you may or may not be aware of this, but Advent is also the season where we anticipate the second coming of Jesus. So we celebrate the first coming, Christmas, but we are also meant to also now anticipate the second coming, Jesus will come again, just as he has already come once. And there are a lot of traditions around the world during Advent. Many countries do different things. Germany 
It's the Advent wreath with four candles. That comes from Germany. Italy, it's the nativity scene. That's probably where it came from. Greece, a seafaring nation. They would decorate boats and not just Christmas trees, but boats. England, now what came out of England? Well, it was perhaps Queen Victoria who made it popular to decorate Christmas trees. It probably also originated from Germany, but she made it popular. Australia, what do we do? What's our tradition? Well, it's shopping at Chatson. 34 hours straight, it's open. I mean, can't think of anything worse than that. But as a church, how will we prepare today for Advent? Well, we are going to prepare by looking at this list of names. A passage, a long list of odd and obscure names. Now, I can just see the excitement on your faces. It's like going to the movies and you spend the first 10 minutes watching the credits roll. You know, it's a bit like that before the action begins. But why does Christmas, the Christmas story, begin with a list of names? Why is it here? I mean, can you think of a more boring start? Well, as we'll see as we consider today, it's far more important than it first appears. You see, if you want to establish royalty, kingship, this is how you do it. You need a genealogy. And if we want to understand why Jesus came and who he came for, well, this genealogy will reveal something that is fascinating. Because what we'll see is that Christmas is about what Jesus has done. He has come as our king, as we heard in the kids' talk. He has come as our king to save us. But he's also come as our brother who cares for us. And so that's the point. Our king, our brother. The first one, Jesus comes as our king. And that's what we see in the very first verse. Have a look. Verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, on first reading, it might not sound like it's saying very much. But even that one verse, it is saying a lot because it's, it's establishing something that we need to hear. Firstly, it's to remind us that this is not merely a story. The Christmas story, the nativity scene, it's not merely a story. I mean, stories begin how? Once upon a time, in a land far, far away. It doesn't begin that way. Whereas history begins with a genealogy. It's history. This is for real. A real person, in a real place, in a real time, a real Jesus with a real ancestry, in a real manger. It is real. It is true. Secondly, do you notice what Jesus is called here? He's called the Christ. We see that at the beginning and at the end of this chapter. He's called the Christ. Now, the word Christ was not the surname of Jesus. Now, many of us will be aware of that. About two months ago, we had the students from the school across the road, the years three and four students. They came here for one hour to ask us about Christianity, the church, what do we believe. We got to share with them. They asked a whole lot of great questions. And one of the questions was, well, what's the surname of Jesus? Well, you see, Christ was not the surname. You don't have a Mr. and Mrs. Christ somewhere. The word Christ is, in fact, a title, a title for king. It means God's anointed king, God's chosen king. And so here in verse 1, Jesus Christ means Jesus the king. And this is the record of the king. Now, why is that important? Because it is so important. 
You see, for thousands of years, God has promised his people that one day there would come a king. One day, a king would come, a king to rule them all, a king who will rule with God's power. And he would be one who would come from an offspring of Abraham. We see that in Genesis 12. From all the peoples of the earth, God says, it's from your seed, Abraham, one of your descendants, he will bring blessing to the entire world. It rests on this one person. And then God also promised to King David that there will always be a king who will sit on his throne. And so in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, your throne, your dynasty, your line will be established forever. And so when we read this, we're meant to bring behind it all the promises of the Old Testament. And then you, you, you get to the Psalms, you get another picture of the vastness of the rule of this king, the power of this king. In Psalm 2, we're told this king will have a special relationship with God. This king will be called the Son of God. And God says to this king, I'll make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And so you see, for centuries and centuries, we're anticipating, well, who is this king? When will he come? This king who will rule them all. This king who will rule the entire earth. And then you get to the prophets and you get an increasingly bigger picture of who this king is and what he will do. You get to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, he speaks of how he'll be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He'll reign on David's throne. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness, not just for some time, but forever. And so you see, we've been waiting, the world has been waiting centuries upon centuries. When will this king come? The one who will rule them all. And then we're also told in Isaiah, he's described, this king will be this, he's described as one who will open the eyes of the blind, who will open the ears of the deaf, who will make the lame leap who will make the mute shout for joy, who, who will proclaim good news to the poor, who will set the captives free, who will release the prisoners from darkness. And so we're meant to be waiting, waiting, waiting. When will he come? When will this king come? You see, all of those promises of God are bound up in verse 1. The anticipation for centuries. In fact, it would have been 2,000 years after God made the promise to Abraham. A thousand years after God made his promises to David. And now, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The king has come. The king. Jesus Christ. God's anointed king. You see how important this genealogy is? Because he's establishing that he is it. It's legit. I mean, it's how you establish any monarchy having any legal right to the throne. I mean, to check whether a monarch has the legal right, you have to check to see if he's in the line of succession. And so recently what I did, a couple of weeks ago, I looked up the official website of our king, King Charles III, royal.uk, the official website. And what do you find under his biography? Well, not exactly a long list like this, but we're told he is the son of Queen Elizabeth II, the previous monarch. And she was the daughter of King George VI. And then you read a bit more in his biography, and we're told that before he became king, 
as heir to the throne, he took on the traditional titles of the Duke of Cornwall under the charter of King Edward III in 1337. And he also had some other Scottish titles as well, which is all to say he's also legit. The genealogy is important to establish the rightful rule of the monarch. I mean, genealogies for us today may not mean much. But here it's to show that Jesus has the pedigree. Son of David, son of Solomon, the line of kings. He has royal blood. He's the rightful king. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And, and that's why at Christmas time we're singing about the birth of the king. It's interesting, isn't it? You're not born as king. Who's born as king? No one's born as king. You're born as a prince if you're part of the royal line as a prince. But Jesus, we sing, glory to the newborn king, born the king of angels, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. And you see what's fascinating is if anyone today claims to come from the line of King David, that someone claims today that I'm the Messiah, it would in fact be impossible to verify. Do you know why? You see, during the time of Jesus, they kept a strict official record of the genealogy. It was kept in the temple. But when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, no more records, all gone. And so if today someone claimed to be the Messiah from the line of David, it will be impossible to verify. It's why this is important. Jesus is the long-awaited king. Now, what I find fascinating, and of course not everyone in the world accepts Jesus as king, but this is what I find fascinating. I'm not sure if you, if you are aware of this. The vast majority of the world acknowledge Jesus as king, even without knowing it. Now, what do I mean? Well, you see, historically, the dating system, our calendar, in any established kingdom or empire was based on the regnal year. That is, when a new king or emperor ascended to the throne, the year would reset to be based on the reign of that king or that emperor. And so in the Roman Empire, Augustus, when he became Caesar, then you start your year dating again from the reign of Caesar Augustus. It's the fifth year in the reign of Caesar Augustus, for example. Even today... In some countries, for example, Japan, though they make use of the Gregorian calendar, they also have their Japanese calendar. And so, a couple of years ago, on the 1st of May in 2019, when Naruhito ascended to the throne as the 126th emperor, they started the year dating again. And so, it is the fourth year in this emperor's reign. You start your calendar by the reign of the king. And so what I mean then when most of the world acknowledges the kingship of Jesus overall, even without knowing it. We see the dating of history pivots around which king? This king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. B.C. is before Christ. A.D., Latin for Anno Domini. In full, in fact, it was Anno Domini Nostri Jesu Christi, which means in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, not everyone believes that, 
but our whole history pivots around the dating of this king, the king of kings. Now, when it was done, it was a few years off, but we are, in fact, living in 2023 in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I find that fascinating. And I wonder whether God had anything to do with that dating. I think he did. So like it or not, Jesus is king. Now, of course, not everyone will see Jesus as king. But when we come to look more deeply at this genealogy and we discover what type of king he is, you want him to be your king. You see, there's more to this genealogy. Now, at this stage, let's just say he's the king. So what? Still feels like he's so far and distant. I mean, how many of us are impacted by any of the kings or emperors around the world? King Charles III, I mean, is Jesus any different? Well, this is where we need to have a closer look at this genealogy because it's making an important point. And it's making a point that is important for us. It matters to us. You see, if you were to have your own genealogy and if it looked a bit like this, you'd probably be pretty proud of it. I come from the line of kings. I'm a direct descendant of Abraham, the man of faith. I'm a direct descendant of David, the slayer of giants. I mean, if you want anyone as part of your ancestry, you want King David, wouldn't you? I mean, that would be a claim to fame. You've got your descendant of Josiah, the boy king who brought the nation back to God. I mean, this is an impressive list of names. And that's how genealogies function in the ancient world. You see, your genealogy, your history, your family history, your ancestry spoke of your worth, your identity, your place in society. In fact, in some cultures, especially in the Eastern cultures, it's why, for example, in Chinese, when you write your name, what comes first? It's not your Christian name, it's your family name comes first. Because who you are, your identity is bound up with your family, your ancestry. It's why seven years ago I found this fascinating uh, our family, we went on a family holiday to Vietnam, and on holidays, what do we do? We visit the grave sites of our ancestors. I mean, what an interesting, fun thing to do on a holiday, but that's what you do. And so we visited this grave site of the brother of my grandfather, um, somewhere in Vietnam, can't remember where. Some writings there in Chinese, but I want to draw your attention to, some of you who can read, the top few words. You see that? Some of you can tell me what it is. I, I asked Yvonne, she checked our Google Translate, so it's confirmed. It, it says that that brother of my grandfather is the 21st generation of those who have the surname Huynh or Wong, which means I'm the 23rd generation of those bearing that surname. And so our ancestry, if anything, it goes back a hundred, a thousand years, you know, if each generation is about 40 to 50 years. And so genealogy in many cultures, and especially in the ancient world, determine your, your worth, your identity, your place in society. And that illustration, I kept it for seven years to use it when I preached on this passage. So there you go. I'm not sure if it worked, but I used it. But in our society... Uh, I know some of us here are interested in your family trees and your ancestral roots, but our, in our society, our ancestors don't really determine who we are. 
here in Australia. What we're far more interested in the Western world, where we're you know, on about Western individualism, it's my resume. It's my CV. It's a record of what I've done, what I've achieved, where I studied, the companies I worked for, my awards, my degrees, my work experience. It's our CV that shows our place in society. And if I want to make myself look better, then I'll take off the stuff that I don't want to include on my CV. I'll include the stuff that I want to include to make myself look better. And so I'll, I'll take out that, those years when I worked at McDonald's. We don't want anyone to know that. You know? Not that there's anything wrong with that. And people, of course, to make themselves look better, embellish their CVs. You know, I can speak five languages. No, you can't. You know, I can only count in five languages. You can't speak. But you see, for us, our CV, for them, was their genealogy. Our place in society is our CV, what we've done as an individual. For that culture is, was their family history. And so now let's take a closer look at, in a sense, the CV of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. Because if you're observant, you wouldn't include some of those names. Timothy Keller was very insightful on this point. You've got a whole bunch of outsiders who would bring shame to the family name. You shouldn't include them, but they are. And who do we see here? Well, you've got the gender outsiders. You've got five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, that was almost unheard of in Jewish genealogies. Patriarchal society, you establish your family by the father. Women had no legal rights, but here we've got five women mentioned. And not the women you would expect. Because if you were to include women in the, in the ancestry of Jesus, who would you include? You include the, the, the matriarchs. Sarah and Rachel and Leah and Rebecca, but they make no mention at all. Don't you find that fascinating? But yet these outsiders were included. We've got Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Uriah's wife. But it's not just the gender outsiders included in the CV of Jesus. You've got the racial outsiders it's not a genealogy of pure Jewish Israelite blood. You've got Gentiles. Now, if we think about that, we might think, well, it's not a big deal. But it's a big deal if you're a Jewish person to make your CV look good. You don't want any Gentile blood there at all. For example, King Herod the Great, the reigning king of Judea during the time of the birth of Jesus, now, he wasn't fully Jewish. He was only half Jewish and half Edomite. And because of that, Herod the Great, he was excluded from the official genealogies. And so he was very embarrassed by that. And so he ordered the burning of the public records to hide his origin. And he tried to revise it to produce a more impressive genealogy, a more impressive resume, a more impressive CV. But yet, what do we have here in the genealogy of Jesus? I mean, these racial outsiders included without shame. And so you've got, it's a bit small, but you've got Tamar, a Canaanite, perhaps a Canaanite woman. You've got Rahab from Jericho. You've got Ruth, a Moabite. 
Now, Moabites were not allowed near the assembly of God. And then you've got Uriah's wife, who was probably a Hittite like Uriah. I mean, they would all have been excluded from the presence of God. But what do we see here? In the CV of Jesus, they're included. Jesus includes them. But not just gender outsiders, not just racial outsiders, but moral outsiders. And if, if your genealogy was your CV, you probably leave off those in your family line, those in your ancestry who are a bit, you know, weird, or you probably exclude those who were criminals. You want to include those who are successful and powerful and famous. You take off those who, who did time, wouldn't you? If you wanted your CV to look good. There was a lady here a few years ago. She said to me, in her family tree, she was related to Ned Kelly. Now, is that a claim to fame? Will you include that? Oh, it's pretty cool, but anyway. But here, in the genealogy of Jesus, you've got Tamar, who committed incest. Now, of course, no ultimate fault of her own, but really of Judah. You've got Rahab, who was a prostitute. And here's the fascinating one. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6. Verse 6 we read, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. All the other women in this genealogy, they're all named. We know their names. But this one, Uriah's wife, she's got a name too. What's her name? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. But why wasn't she mentioned in the genealogy? Well, perhaps on one level, it was a literary, literary device where, where it's, it's to slow us down in reading it. We need to work out, Uriah's wife, who's that? Well, we know it's Bathsheba. But why slow us down? Perhaps on another level is to draw attention to the fact that she had been married to Uriah when David slept with her. What's the point? Not so much that she was the moral outsider, but who? David. King David. I mean, the great King David. The one who would look so impressive on your CV, but he's included here as one of the moral outsiders. He's the one who seduced her. He's the one who committed adultery while she was married to someone else. It's making a point about David. He had no right to be in the presence of God. And so what do you do when you have that type of CV? Well, Jesus includes them. Along with the downright evil kings, Abijah, Manasseh, Amon. And so if we take a closer look, what's the point of this messy now CV? Well, you see, Jesus comes as king, the rightful king, the one who fulfills God's promises. But he also comes as our brother. Not as a king who's high and lofty, completely distancing himself from messy, broken people, uninterested in our plight. It's as though Jesus has come down at Christmas and he sits with us in the gutters of earth, with all the messiness and brokenness of humanity. He didn't dismiss us if we've got a pass. He's not ashamed of us, because we do. And so he includes Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba. You're included 
in the family name. It's in fact what we just recently learned in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. You see, Christmas, it's wonderful, it's profound, it's a mystery. A king who's not far and high and lofty and distant, but the brother who has come close, like us because he cares for us. And so he has come for us. That's what we need to remember this Christmas. He's come for us so that we might be counted like these outsiders amongst his, among his family. Because if you think about it, we'll all have CVs. And some of us more impressive than others. PhDs and degrees and we've worked here and there and speak five languages and it'll all be forgotten. Who cares? We might have a place in society now because of my CV, my resume, but soon we'll be forgotten. I mean, just try to go back in your own ancestry. How far back can you go? Grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather? Eventually, eventually we'll be forgotten too. And who cares what our genealogy is like? I mean, it was fascinating for me to learn that I'm the 23rd generation bearing the surname. In the end, who cares? In fact, even for royalty, those of royal blood, I mean, you just look at the history. Even in the Bible, there is no security if you've got royal blood. I mean, consider David and his son Absalom who tried to take the throne. Or throughout our history, I mean, you've got palace intrigue, brothers fighting against brothers to claim the throne. Or you've got the story of King Richard III, who, who probably killed his nephews to seize the crown. Royal blood, your genealogy, might be the rich and famous, provides no security at all, no comfort at all. But, but do you see what Jesus, the true king, has come to do? He has come not just as the king, the true king, but as our brother, to count us among his family, to include us in his family. And nothing can take that away. I mean, you think about our late Queen Elizabeth II. She'll go down to history as the longest-serving British monarch. 70 years she reigned. But eventually, she'll be forgotten. Give it a few generations. She'll be just like one of the other monarchs and she'll be forgotten. Who cares if she reigned for that long? People won't remember her. But though she may be forgotten by the world, she won't be forgotten by her king and her brother. Do you know how every year Queen Elizabeth II, she would give her Christmas address? In 2012, she said this. She said, This is the time of year when we remember that God sent his only son to serve, not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. So what has she done? Which is what we're called to do at Christmas time. It's to recognize that Jesus is a Christ. He is the King. And because of her trust in him, she'll be counted. She is counted amongst the family of Jesus. Not forgotten. Just like the women in this genealogy. Those of us who feel like outsiders. Those of us who feel like we're, we're overlooked by the world. 
But if our trust is in Jesus, we will never be overlooked by the king, our brother. And so how would this Advent season be for you? It will be busy. We might be caught up with all the hustle and bustle. But reflecting on this genealogy is helpful. If Jesus is not ashamed to have them as part of his CV, then by faith in him, us too, Jesus will not be ashamed of us. I one day will be forgotten. You'll be forgotten by the world, even by our own, own descendants. But we won't be forgotten by Jesus, the King, our brother. And so what about you? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for even this list of long names to show that you do keep your promise. Jesus came as our King and as our brother who cares for us. Help us, Lord, this Christmas to trust in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.